Thank you, and good morning. I'll try that again. Good morning. That's more for my own sake than, than for yours. Um, as Joseph mentioned, my name is Naman. Uh, I'm fresh here in Pittsburgh. We moved into the city about three weeks ago uh, to serve here at City Reformed as a pastoral assistant, as the welcoming director, uh, and, and some other ways, but also starting a new campus ministry at Carnegie Mellon University. So if you are a student at Car Carnegie Mellon, especially an undergrad student, I'd love to meet you after the service uh, sometime. Uh, come up, introduce yourself. I don't exactly know who you are. You guys aren't exactly wearing a CMU name tag or anything, but I would love to meet you, uh, get to know you, and, and talk about what it looks like to start a ministry on campus. I'm excited to do that. I'm also excited to to preach the Word of God this morning. And uh, before I do that, just a little bit of an introduction, a little more of an introduction of myself. Uh, Joseph mentioned my wife, Sarah, and daughter, Isabel, in the back there. Um, yeah, we've been in Boston for the last 12 years for myself and, and eight years for Sarah. So this is a, a big transition for us, but wholeheartedly believe that this is where God has called us to, to love Pittsburgh, to love City Reform, to love CMU and, and beyond. So we're glad, excited to be here. We were at a church, a PCA church called City Life, uh, full-time for the last five years, but also I had been there three, three years part-time uh, and also as a college student. So if you like uh, baseball, if, if baseball analogies is your thing, you can kind of see me as I, I, I grew up and they, they brought me through the minor system and, and I was up there for a while, but uh, they traded me to Pittsburgh, so I'm here now. <laughs> Happy to be here, though. Um, I've had my hand in a different ministry while I was at City Life and up in Boston, uh, a couple years in missions, leading community group ministry there, uh, helping start a, a New England regional chapter of the Gospel Coalition, a whole slew of administrative uh, duties. But the two of the biggest ministries that kind of hold close to my heart were university ministry, and my longest tenured ministry was the welcoming ministry. So needless to say, City Reform was pretty intentional about hiring me and bringing me on. Uh, to help lead our welcoming ministry at our church and also to start this campus ministry at, at Carnegie Mellon. So again, I can't reiterate enough how excited we are to be here. Uh, so as we look into the passage this morning, I'd like to say that Matt had just concluded uh, this sermon series through the book of Acts, and, and we saw Apostle Paul there um, kind of begin his journey and missions into Rome, and so now we're in the book of Rome. So I wish it was that kind of intricate and well thought out, but simply Matt just asked me to preach a passage on welcoming, and, and, and we're here. So um, we find ourselves in the, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, if you'd read with me. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So as we look at this passage this morning, it's, it's very intricately laid out. It seems like a lot. There are many short sentences there, almost short commands on how to live a good Christian life, so to speak. Um, so as we look at this passage today, I want to focus on the central theme of how genuine love is meant to give forth towards hospitality, how genuine love lends towards this idea of hospitality. And so we'll look at that central theme in three different ways. The appeal of genuine love, first of all, the appeal to hospitality, and lastly, the source of it all. The appeal of genuine love, the appeal to hospitality, and the, and the source of it all, lastly. So we'll start with the appeal of genuine love, starting in verse 9. It says, let love be genuine. If we look at this passage a little deeply, and we look at the original languages, there actually isn't a, a verb here that says, let love be genuine, but this can be more precisely translated to say, genuine love. Genuine love. Sort of the heading of this entire passage is that all the other verses that follow is a descriptor of what genuine love looks like. So these, these are what all these verses are anchored around. This one single command is, let your love be genuine, or the heading of genuine love. And so we see 29 commands and prohibitions of what it looks like to display genuine love to one another. But what does it mean to be genuine? One way that I want to start to look at that is, what does it mean to not be genuine? What does it mean to be fake, insincere, almost? Um, and all of us may have an idea of what this may look like. For those of us who are parents, that includes myself, I'm sure that we know what this looks like because we can tell when our kids are crying for real, right? The intonation is different. The pitch is, is way higher. It's like this frequency that only dogs can hear. And you can separate between, I know when my child is fake crying or I know when my child really needs my embrace and my support. Or for those of us in the working world, have you ever found yourself in a situation where your coworkers kind of act differently around the boss? Uh, they, they sort of perk up, they put on this smile, they try to, you know, do whatever the boss wants them to do in the way that they want them to. Have you ever found yourself doing that to your boss? Anybody a, a, friend, a fan of the sitcom Friends here? And you watch the episode where Chandler develops a work laugh because his boss tells a lot of these misogynist, really offensive jokes, but in order to fit in with his, his boss, he just kind of laughs along with it. He goes, ah, but it's not his real genuine laugh. Something a little like that. Or if you're a college student, specifically this time of year, and more specifically if you're a freshman, maybe you just came through a whole week of orientation. All of these activities, all of these displays, all of these smiles and people coming up to you and, and having these conversations with you. And there's a little suspicious part of you that deep down is like, is this person just trying to get my email address? <laughs> you know, I, I'd admit, I, I might do that too. This idea of, of 
genuineness, of genuine love, but also closely tied to this idea of fakeness because ingenuineness, insincerity, is very easily discernible. We all know, and we could, we could tell right off the bat whether something or someone is genuine and sincere or just trying, has an ulterior motive. There is a very stale taste that gets left in our mouths. I want to also propose that this is very challenging for a lot of us today because, especially those of us in a younger generation, if, if you would consider yourself a millennial, we live in an age where social media tends to rule a lot of the relational contact that we have. Way more time is being spent on Facebook, on Instagram, YouTube, Reddit, what have you, than it was five, ten years ago. A lot of these platforms didn't even exist ten years ago. And the reason why this is so challenging is because the underlying pretense of social media is that it's very curated. Like, you have control of what gets put forward, right? Nobody actually just chooses that option to, to take your profile picture right then and there, but you have to crop it, you have to edit it, you have to put the right filter on it, and then you have to put the right caption or quote on it so that whenever somebody lands on your profile, you want them to see what you want them to see. Um, there are many professional bloggers out there. There are a lot of online personalities out there where this is their job. This is their career. This is what they do for a living is to curate themselves, to present themselves in a certain way, and to offer their opinions on life. And people follow. People are persuaded by this very easily. The University of Pittsburgh, uh, their Brain Institute, actually recently conducted a study to say that users of social media platforms, people who use at least seven or more social media platforms are actually three times more likely to experience some sign of anxiety or depression than people who use two or less. It's this idea that social media, this, this relational medium of how we interact with one another is changing. There's so many more opportunities to present ourselves in different ways, whether genuine and true or maybe not so genuine, maybe a little bit insincere. Now, I, I say all that not to say that social media is bad, but to present the reality that there are so, much, so many more distractions, so many more opportunities where genuineness is called into question. For those of us that don't fall into that younger generation category and you have no idea what I'm talking about or never heard about Reddit, um, it's okay. It's, it's to also display and show that this is what our world is struggling with. This is what we're dealing with. This is what is constantly in the news, in studies, what people are concentrating on. This is how people are interacting with one another, and it's very different from what the older generation might be used to. The Apostle Paul in this passage in Romans is warning us, warning the church, warning city reformed of making our love more than just a pretense, more than an outward display of emotion, of interest, but it's to call us to genuine love. And as I throw all that together, it kind of leads us to, man, I would love to meet somebody. I would love to talk to somebody who is sincere, who is real, who is genuine. There is an inherent desire for that. We love things that are genuine, genuine leather. We love things that are authentic, established back in 1901, the original thing. 
So when genuine love is felt, when genuine love is displayed in the life of the community, what does it look like? It's just wrought throughout this passage. Abhor evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing each other honor. Don't be lazy. Be on fire with enthusiasm to serve. Rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Pray constantly. Live in harmony. These are all specific descriptors that Paul lays out here in this passage of what genuine love looks like. So we'll now move to the second part of my sermon where I'll take all 28 of these points and expound upon them in the next 10 hours or so. Just kidding. Um, I could do that. And we could spend a single sermon on each of these verses on what it looks like to display genuine love. But for the specific goal today of talking about hospitality, talking about welcoming in the life of our church, welcoming in the life of our city, welcoming in this time of year, especially as new people are coming through, new students are coming through, Uh, New people for programs are coming through. How do we welcome others into our church? And how do we welcome others into our lives? So then we'll move on to the second point of the appeal to hospitality. If you would read with me starting in verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, very short, very curt on what Paul commands us to do, but very full. There's a lot in there of what he's talking about. So we'll start with, uh, we'll break this verse up into two parts. The first being contribute to the needs of the saints. In the ancient Near Eastern context, this would have literally meant contribute to the material needs of the people in your community that were in need. So those who didn't have food, those who didn't have water, those who didn't have clothing or shelter provide for that. The church should be an outlet a mercy ministry for those who were truly in need. And we can jive with that. We can empathize with that because even here at City Reformed, we have deacons. We have a group of men, a, group, a diaconate that is in charge of the mercy ministry to listen to the needs, the material needs of the community. But if we were to stem outside of just the formal ministry of a mercy ministry, contributing to the needs of the saints, let's look at what Paul is trying to talk about in also his context. This idea of contributing, being a part of a fellowship, a part of a larger body, a larger community, meant more than just providing material needs for that, but to being sensitive of what the internal, the spiritual, the mental needs of the entire community was. So for Paul to say contribute to the needs of the saints could also mean be sensitive to what's going around, what's going on around you. Bear one another's burdens. Be alert to the needs that are afflicting God's people. Be generous without being selfish or begrudging. And help make contributions to the lives around you. When I think about this command, I'm reminded of a gentleman in my previous conversation. We'll just call him Bob to maintain anonymity. And Bob uh, was really unlike the typical mold of what you would find at City Life Church. City Life Church was predominantly a lot of young professionals, young families, and Bob was retired. He was kind of in in the back nine of of his career. Uh, Bob was an older Caucasian gentleman, and a lot of the people who were attending City Life uh, were of the pan-Asian ethnic background. Uh, Bob probably leaned a little hard right on his political and, and views, and a lot of people at City Life may not have agreed with them a lot of the times. So Bob, you could tell already 
didn't necessarily fit the mold. But for whatever reason, he started coming. Every Sunday, was very faithful to, to our worship service, to the things that we were doing in our community. And, and none of us really understood why, but we just kind of took that as it was. And then one day, we hear the news that Bob has cancer. And our pastors and our elders got together, and they deliberated of, of how they could well care for this man. A man who seemingly had, had no business associating with people that attended our church, but still was faithful in doing that. So they not only went uh, as he was going in for his chemotherapy sessions, he was, they were praying with him. They were offering his wife meals while he was in the hospital. And five, ten years later, Bob still attends City Life. He is now like the surrogate grandfather of all the little kids that run around at City Life. He and his wife never could have kids, and this was a way that he was giving back to our church. So how does that fit into contributing to the needs of the saints? It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you look like or what your views are. But when we, are, when we begin to have this true idea of fellowship, this idea of genuine love as we seek out others, as we think about what their burdens are, as we think about what their needs are, what is afflicting them, and as we care for them in those ways, we begin to get an idea of what Paul is talking about when he says contribute to the needs of the saints. Next, we see this idea of hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. Uh, back in those days, as Paul is writing this, hospitality was huge in the life of the church because there weren't almost any motels or hotels in the ancient Near East. Um, if there, uh, there were a lot of travels, travelers, and if there were motels, they couldn't afford it. And if they could afford it, it was probably pretty unsavory conditions or is very dangerous to stay in them. So Paul is always reminding the church to show hospitality, to open up the doors of your home, to feed these people, to give them shelter as they travel, whether they're missionaries, whether they're coming just to visit the church. Uh, so the hospitality was, was kind of ingrained in the life of the church. But he commands the church not only to show hospitality for those who come to visit, but actually go out of your way to seek it, to seek hospitality. Whereas one commentator said, an early church father, how finely does Paul sum up the generosity of the man who pursues hospitality in one word? For by saying that hospitality is to be pursued, he shows that we are not just to receive the stranger when he comes to us, but actually inquire after and look carefully for strangers to pursue them and search them out everywhere. Uh, I'd, I'd love to just to pause here and, and have this be a plug for our welcoming ministry to say, hey, we're in need of volunteers. Here's a way that you can do that. I, I'm not going to do that. I guess I already indirectly did that, though. But, um, <laughs> uh, but what is Paul talking about here? Uh, more than just trying to accrue volunteers in the ministry. And I'll talk to different groups that might be represented right now. Um, if you are a member of City Reformed, um, are we aware of those around us who are new? Are we aware of those around us who are in need? Are there those around us who are hurting or need someone to share a burden with? How do we have ways in which we do that? Uh, if you're visiting City Reform, maybe for the first time, maybe you've been coming for a, first, uh, for a couple of times, but you are Christian, we're glad you're here. 
Uh, you may or may not call City Reformed your church family in the next couple of weeks, couple of months. Um, but also, this applies to us, as, to, to you as well. Are there people in your life, relationally, um, whether it's your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate, your floor mate, um, whoever it may be, are you involved in their life? Do you know their story? Are you aware of what their need might be? And lastly, if you're visiting today and you're not Christian, we're also glad that you're here. You kind of are getting this insider conversation of how Christians should interact, how Christians should live with one another. Um, so keep asking these questions. It's great that you're getting this insight of, of what hospitality should look like in the church. But I'll also say that there's probably a more, a bigger priority that, we should, that you should consider as we look at, on this idea of hospitality itself. And I'll get to that a little bit more in my next point. But we're glad that you're here. And so as I, as I ask these questions, I ask them to myself. And as I ask them to myself, I'm, I'm very quickly, the first reaction that I have is that I'm weighed down. I'm burdened. This seems like a lot. There are a lot of barriers to hospitality. Uh, in reality, every church, every community wants to be hospitable. Like, who wouldn't be? No church's motto is to is to be like, we're closing all doors and we don't want anybody else to visit. No, like, no church says that. Every church wants to be welcoming. Every church wants to be hospitable. But the reality is that displaying hospitality, A, requires time, energy, and requires sacrifice. And B, genuine hospitality might force us to reassess uh, the relationships that we already have. I'll unpack that a little bit. Hospitality requires sacrifice, whether it's extra time that you spend before church on Sunday, after church on Sunday, during the week to, to meet other people, to ask them questions, to invite them into your own home. It requires a lot of energy, and I'm speaking to a lot of the introverted folk in the room, like where people associating and socializing is like a, a burden and a tax on you, and that's okay because that's just the way you're wired, but it will require more energy. It all, hospitality also requires resources, money. It might actually cost you to show hospitality as it did uh, in the ancient Near Eastern church. Hospitality requires sacrifice. Genuine hospitality might also force you to reassess the very relationships that you have now, especially those who you would consider to be, have, be close relationships. I say that because there were a lot of studies done uh, where, where experts would study a community or uh, maybe even a church body, uh, especially those that were kind of cliquish and maybe struggling a little bit on the hospitality front. And they would research and ask, survey people from the inside, people who were within the cliques and people who were outside, whether they were just visiting or just come on the fringes. And they would ask them these sets of questions. They would ask them the same questions. They would ask the people on um, the inside, how do you feel about the welcoming of your church or the welcoming of your community. And they would ask the outsiders, how do you feel about the welcoming of your community? And the people on the inside would say, it's great. We're all friendly. We love each other. We're, all so, we're so t close knit and tight. And then the response from the outsiders would be, I had a really hard time fitting in. I didn't understand the jokes that they were telling. I didn't understand the language that they were using. And you can quickly see whether or not, whether you're on the inside or the outside, your experience of hospitality is very different um, depending on where you come from. So I want to say that to say hospitality is different than friendliness. 
I think as a church, for the, the three weeks that I've been here, everybody has been super friendly. And it's been amazing. I come from Boston, I come from the East Coast, and it's not that way. <laughs> um, but this idea of welcoming, of seeking to pursue, pursuing hospitality is very different than just being friendly. It will, it will cause us to reassess every other relationship that we have right now and require like, to, us to think about what would it look like for us to actually pursue other people. And that might mean that we have to sacrifice a little bit on the relationships that we already have. Again, these are a lot of big asks for me, the new guy, to present for you. Uh, and I want to say that this is not done alone. This is not done by just trying harder, by being better, doing better, thinking better. Uh, but lastly, it brings us to the source of all, source of this genuine love, the source of showing hospitality. I mentioned in the beginning that this passage was probably more aptly uh, outlined in a way that says genuine love, heading, and all the descriptors of what genuine love looks like and these commands that you should do to show genuine love. But what would happen if our perspective began to change and we saw these verses on not the how-to be a good Christian and lead a good moral life, but a description of a life changed, the results of experiencing a higher genuine love than our own. In other words, genuine love is not about the input of what we do, how we act, how we think, but how, but how we are changed by a different genuine love that we ex have experienced in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul here is trying to draw on the very teachings of Jesus himself at certain points. Verse 14, bless those who, bless, who curse you. Do not, bless and do not curse them. He's not reinventing the wheel here. He's offering Jesus. Not only in his teachings, but in his very life. And I'll bring our attention back to verse 19. It says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. In his final wrap-up of this, of this passage, of this section in Romans, Paul closes this up in a very interesting way. He admonish, admonishes us not to take justice into our own hands. God will offer his final judgment at the end times. Now this is a very hard thing to do, whether you are a listener in the Roman context or even as you're a listener today. We see the brokenness in this world. We see injustice. We see unfairness. And it's our knee-jerk reaction to do something about it, to at least feel a certain way about it. But Paul reminds us not to take justice into our own hands. Don't try to make things right on your own accord. Everything that is wrong with the world Everything that is corrupt, everything that is evil, everything that is unjust, Christ died to pay the penalty for on the cross. Instead, don't take matters into your own hands, but we reflect on the love that Christ has displayed on the cross for us. So what are we to do in place of that? Feed the hungry. Give those who are thirsty something to drink. Clothe those who are naked. Give shelter for those without a home. Show hospitality. Love genuinely. 
the source of any kind of genuine love, any kind of genuine hospitality we can reflect is going to start by believing in this work of Christ, that God, the eternal Son, came down to live with us, to be one with us. And for everything that was broken, everything that was wrong, everything that was unjust in this world, he came to die for as a penalty for sin on the cross. The gospel tells us that genuine love starts with God. We love genuinely because he genuinely loved us first. We welcome because he has welcomed us, as Derek mentioned. Or as one commentator put it, the love of Christians for others is grounded in and enabled by the love of God expressed in the gift of his son. An indispensable mark of the new creation in Christ. So I just want to close with a couple of points of application. What does this look like? How can we begin to reflect this? How can we begin to practice this? Again, to those in City Reformed, how are we involved? How are we sensitive to the needs of our community? How are we aware of those who are new in our church? Those who are hurting, those who are afflicted. If you're Christian, whether you're with City Reformed or whether you're not, how are we involved in the lives of those around us? To the relational uh, investments that we already have made, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our friends. Do we know their story? Do we know their names? How can we love them genuinely? And again, if you're visiting and, you're, and you wouldn't consider yourself a question, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're considering these questions of hospitality with us. But I would actually encourage you to consider the question of genuine love first. To explore the person of Jesus and how his genuine love would move us, move all of us to love others genuinely. As a church, as a body, we're all involved in the ministry not just the pastors, not just the campus ministers or the staff or volunteers, but every single one of us is involved in the ministry of, of God in this church, in this city. Ministry is not the sum total effort of what you can do as a Christian, uh, but as uh, a mentor of, once, uh, of mine once told me, ministry is the wake of what you leave behind you as you pursue Christ. Ministry is the wake of what you leave behind you as you pursue this genuine love found in Jesus. So that's my prayer. That's my vision. As we think about welcoming this year, as we think about campus ministry this year, as we think about loving others in this church and those beyond, is how do we do that while we pursue Jesus? Let me pray.